You're listening where the world comes to talk. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Of all the battles that have been written about in the American Civil War, one that gets less attention than it deserves, perhaps, is that of the first battle of Manassas. And of all the generals of the war, one who gets less favorable attention than perhaps any is George McCollin. Our guest today is Ethan Rayfuse, author of A Single Grand Victory, The First Campaign and Battle of Manassas, and McClellan's War, The Failure of Moderation in the Struggle for the Union. We'll find, about, find out about these two underachievers, the battle and the general, when we talk to Ethan Rayfuse on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. My name is Jerry Prokopovich, talking to you today from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, in the elegant and classically 1960s-style Brewster Building, home of the History Department. As always, though, speaking only for myself, my guest speaks for him, the university goes about its own business, celebrating this year, 2007, the 100th anniversary of East Carolina University, formerly East Carolina Teachers College, and I think some other names before that. Well, today, a uh, little sound there, uh, and as always, before we go further, thanks for all who've contributed to Civil War Talk Radio with your generous donations over the past weeks and months. Uh, those are always welcome. Please check the website for the link that says PayPal, and you can donate that way or send something directly to the office, and it will be used for more Civil War books, which we'll talk about on the show. Well, let's move on. Today, uh, my guest, uh, Ethan S. Rafuse, is uh, hopefully with us today. Are you there, Ethan? Yes, I am. Great. Uh, glad you could join us. My pleasure. Uh, you've written a number of interesting books, but uh, as I like to do uh, with most guests, and especially those that I haven't had the, the pleasure of meeting in person before, ask a little bit about how you got interested in the subject and what your background is. Well, I grew up in Northern Virginia, uh, which is a pretty, uh, pretty 
decent Civil War country. Um, my mother was an undergraduate in history, and so we always had history books around the class, around the house, I should say. And uh, I just got fascinated by the Civil War. Um, I went to George Mason University, uh, studied under Professor Harsh, and uh, with his encouragement, went to the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and studied under Professor Hathaway. And I think it, to a large extent, it's just simple fact that I grew up in Virginia, and when stuff happens so close to where you live, it's hard not to get interested in it. Well, that, that's quite a, a pedigree there to work with Joseph Harsh and, and Herman Hathaway. You, mm-hmm. you had some of the best uh, teaching you. Absolutely. I, when uh, well, Professor Hathaway only retired uh, four or five years ago, as I recall. Yes, he did. And uh, I remember actually interviewing for the position that opened up when he left, mm-hmm. and having one of the uh, people on the uh, the uh, search committee say, "Well, uh, you've already written a book, and you've done this, and you've done that. Uh, what are you applying for this?" Sort of uh, entry level, they did you know recast it as entry mm-hmm. position. Uh, I never understood that mentality in hiring committees. Why are you interested in this job, considering how tight the market is? Well, that's exactly what I thought. I, my my, the instant response was, well, I have to eat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll take uh, you know I'll take a job mopping the floor in the history department. Uh, I, I've got to I got to work, and the, the market's tight. It's tight for all of us. But that was. Uh, who did they get for that position, by the way? Um, which uh, they did two iterations, two oh, okay. 19th century hires. One was they decided to hire an environmentalist, uh-huh. a history of the West, sort of environmental focus, and another one who'd done work. I think her name is Diana Mutti Burke or something like that, mm-hmm. and she did did work on social aspects of the Civil War in Missouri, I believe. Uh, well, there was uh, there was another place I won't mention by name that same job search that that advertised the job as a Civil War historian. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very noted, much published Civil War historian was retiring, and uh, I ended up not getting that position. And I heard through the grapevine, they said, "Well, your your work was too much about the Civil War." Uh, they, as with so many departments today, they're really looking for somebody who would do something perhaps more race, class, gender focused, and not yeah, talk about. Those it seems odd to me um, because it seems we. When they're hiring Civil War positions, they're not looking for Civil War military history. No. And when they're hiring military history positions, the Civil War is, you know, they're thinking more like uh, 20th century military history. So doing Civil War military history is certainly an odd, it, it, there's an, it's an odd position, I think, in the, in the job market. It is. Academia does not look favorably on it. And then the worst part, of course, is that those of us who write anything that could be construed as military history... Um, sell more books than the people writing the the obscure, uh, fashionable stuff, and that just makes our colleagues unhappy. Um, Who knows? <laughs> but but we can live with that part. Well, it, speaking of that, I read this week your book, uh, A Single Grand Victory, the, the first campaign and battle of Manassas, mm-hmm. and I, I want to talk about that a little bit with you first, uh, if we could. I, I definitely want to ask you about your McCollin book as well. But I was struck reading the. Uh, I, I really enjoyed it. I want to say I thought it was a very good introduction to uh, not just to that campaign, but to the war as a whole. In fact, I made a note. I'm going to have to assign that the next time I teach the Civil War course, so uh, you can sell another 30 or 40 copies right there. I can always use the money. It <laughs> never hurts. Um, the uh, the book, as you point out in your your introduction. It's not just a military history. It does a very good job with the 
the, the, the drums and trumpets when it describes how the brigades move on the battlefield. But it sets the battle in a, a social context and talks about the, the resources and expectations of both sides at the start of the war. One thing that struck me, though, is the, the reference you make to the, the new military history. Mm-hmm. Um, when are we going to be done with the, the new military history? And by that I mean the, the idea of, of writing military history that's not simply uh, purely technical but deals with social uh, impacts of military history must date at least back to uh, to Russell Wigley's New Dimensions in Military History, mm-hmm. uh, famous collection of essays. And that book is not only older than our students, it's older than our students' parents. Mm-hmm. Um, have we not yet moved on beyond the, the idea of a, a new, so-called new military history yet? Um, I'm not certain there's a, we need to move beyond it because I think, I mean, you look at current events, um, discussions of the current military, uh, our military was very, very successful doing the brigade movements and the, 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 the old, what we consider old military history. However, it has had problems dealing with the social and cultural context in the post-war situation. And... So um, there's, I, I see no reason to move away from what's called the new military history, although you know the, the traditional movements of armies, um, the decisions, the focus on, on commanders, battles, campaigns, um, is still very important to be studied. Um, but I think you know, casting aside the social considerations of the social and consult, cultural context um, would be a mistake as well. Um, and I see no – in my book I tried to blend both, and I think it can be done very effectively. Um, well, I think your book does so, and, and I don't at all mean to say we ought to, to cease to write about the mm-hmm. social uh, context of military events, but rather the maybe it's just the the name of the thing, the calling it the new military history. It's, it's hard for something to be new after a generation of right. Sooner or later, it's it's, it's walking with a cane. It's it's just not new anymore. Um, but but it should be the mainstream. I, I, again, I. I've, was very impressed with how your book on Manassas uh, incorporates, for example, the issues of gender uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in gender roles. Normally, when I come across something that says we're going to talk about gender roles, now my eyes glaze over and I start flipping the pages. Uh, but you you really showed what relevance that had to the military side of the Manassas campaign. Could, could you talk about that? Yeah, it's one of the amazing things that uh, that military historians, when they hear gender history, they ought to, their their the hair on their back stands up and they they you know get kind of um, uncomfortable with it. But some people pointed out there are a few things more gendered in history than um, warfare, in which we clearly make you know men as warriors and and appeals to defending uh, the home and defending women and how military service defines being a man. Uh, so, you know, military history is full of gender history, um, and I, I think some, I, sometimes there's sort of a negative reaction to it that's, you know, a bit, a bit overblown. We, that it does provide insights into, you know, the questions of why men join up, why they stay in the army, um, it, 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 you know, concepts of self-identity, um, which you know are very, very critical to what all people do, and uh, certainly it applies to soldiers as well, and you know. One big distinction in one big distinction in in life is is the gender distinction, um, and so 
incorporating that in the military history seems as appropriate as any, as incorporating anything else. And not only is there obviously the gender distinction of men and women, but you show that there's a, a, a substantial distinction in the perception of masculinity in the North and South in 1861. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's absolutely fascinating with the, the more modern definitions of uh, what's considered manliness in the North, I mean, be more defined around self-control, self-discipline, um, very much in, the, in the, the tone of modernization. Whereas the South, being a man, is a, it's in a willingness to um, go, be, you know, to shed things that try to discipline you and assert your aggressiveness and assert your um, manliness. Um, it's just a fact. Just a, it's, it's a truly interesting contrast between the two societies. And, and, it, and it helps explain why both sides thought they could win this war in the mm-hmm. short order. The other side was not manly by their own standards. Mm-hmm. The the uh, particularly, I guess the southern view is maybe easier to grasp that uh, the the independent, aggressive, violent male is is manly, and the northern milk toast working behind a counter in a shop is is uh, feminized and weak. Mm-hmm. But I was fascinated by your your suggestion that the northerners saw it the other way around. Mm-hmm. That, uh, yeah, if you're being aggressive and you're being really assertive, you're really just trying to mask the fact that you're not manly. It's a mask as opposed to a true, because true dis- true manliness is being disciplined, organized, uh, focused, uh, whereas, you know, the, the aggressiveness is considered to be an unmanly thing to do. Well, and, and you're ruled by your emotions, which yeah, is a womanly exactly. thing to do. And, and it goes back, it's, it's, a, it's an odd concept in American culture that there's passion versus emotion, and a true man governs himself by reason, uh, while the, you know, the lesser man governs himself by his passions. And you see, it's just an interesting theme in 19th century U.S. history. And, and I, I, I really liked that portion of the book, and I decided I plan to uh, assign this to students in, in the future because it really ties in with uh, how these things can mm-hmm. can affect what happens on the battlefield ultimately, or at least why two countries, two regions decide to go to war over mm-hmm. something like this. Now, the war, the, the battle that the two sides expect to fight at Manassas mm-hmm. uh, was, it was expected by both sides to be uh, the battle of the war. It would just mm-hmm. take one battle. Mm-hmm. It would be a single Waterloo-type engagement, and they'd been taught that by the military history they read, which was a single battle, you know, the, the, the Crazy's uh, great book, you know, Decisive Battles, that battles are decided by the, 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 the greater, the better moral cause, um, and that because their side was superior, they were going to actually win the first battle, and because the other side was inferior, after one battle, the other side would quit. Uh, you know, Southerners may have had a lot of passions that would lead them to fight, but once those passions had been broken in a battle, they would, they would lose their taste for the, bat, for the war. Consequently, they assumed, Southerners assumed Northerners, you know, once they, once they realized their, their rational calculation let them realize there was no money in what they were doing after a battle, that they would then uh, back off and, you know, let the South have its independence. So they each, by their own uh, analysis of the situation, it makes sense to both of them that the other side can only stand one defeat, mm-hmm. and that's going to do it. And you mentioned Edward Creasy's uh, uh, 15 Decisive Battles of the World. Mm-hmm. I guess I think there's, like, some recent edition now, it's like 20 Decisive Battles. Yeah, there's yep. every few... Every few years, there's a book that's out that says 15 decisive battles, or 20 decisive battles, or 10 decisive battles, and the, the battles make military history so dramatic and so interesting. 
And it's no wonder that we constantly focus on the battles as, the, as a, sort of the climax. You know, we're looking for that, that story arc, and the battle provides that great climax uh, to uh, events. And yet in the Civil War, we see it's not really, uh, it doesn't really decide things. Mm-hmm. Uh, we end up, uh, certainly, certainly Manassas doesn't decide anything. Mm-hmm. And they end up slugging it out for four years. And one of the questions is, um, why does that happen? And one of the criti- criti- critics of the book has said that I didn't go into the question of, uh, okay, they had the battle, it didn't decide it, why not? Um, and that's the question that you know, sort of been wrestling with, because what if the North wins that first battle, and they go to Richmond, and why assume the Confederates, the people of the South, are going to collapse? Uh, we have seen you know, throughout history that uh, you overrun the enemy's capital, and that's when your problems begin. Uh, I guess we're seeing that at the very moment we're we're speaking today. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's almost something you can set your watch by in military history. In 1870, the uh, Prussians defeat the French army, and they go to they go to encircle and, and besiege Paris. And the, the French have been defeated, um, and they turn to partisan warfare. Um, and they it's it's just it happens so often. Um, you have to wonder whether that would have happened in the Civil War if the North had won its first battle like it expected to do so. It, 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 Napoleon it, takes Moscow, for example. Yeah. Uh, you're right. It, it, taking the capital is no guarantee. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point. I, I guess, I mean, one can argue, uh, lo- looking the other way, the South does win, and it, it in some ways does them more harm than good. They get uh, uh, victory disease like the Japanese in, in mm-hmm. the early years of World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, you win that first battle too easily, and you you assume uh, the other you, you begin to underestimate the other side's capabilities. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that didn't do the South any good. But your point is very interesting. What if the North had won, mm-hmm. taken the the taken Richmond and moved on? Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take a short break ourselves here, okay. and we'll be back in just a minute. We'll talk. Uh, more about General McClellan, the controversial character. We're talking today with Ethan Rafuse on Civil War Talk Radio. contradictory emotions like few other Civil War generals. We'll find out the straight story about General McClellan from Ethan Rafuse on Civil War Talk Radio. You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website smallbusinesssuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small business success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, 
and who doesn't, you should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. smallbusinesssuccess.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Ethan Rafuse, author of A Single Grand Victory, The First Campaign and Battle of Manassas, and also McClellan's War, The Failure of Moderation, The Struggle for the Union. Um, Ethan, we're talking about Manassas in the, the first segment, and uh, we might come back to that a bit. But I want to ask you, uh, where is it that you are teaching right now? I teach at the U.S. Army's Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. What, uh, what does that mean? What, who are your students? My students are their majors, mid-career officers, 10, uh, about 12 years into their careers. Um, it's the sort of the intermediate-level education is what we're providing to them, preparing them to move to make the transition from being tactical leaders as lieutenants and captains uh, to being staff officers and being operational-level leaders. Uh, that's our job is to help them get through that transition. And I teach military history courses, um, which have as their objective to help educate them and help them develop and understand the current operating environment and military change in the past. What uh, Do they like studying military history, or do they, they find it like a requirement but it's obsolete that doesn't really affect what they really do? They can enjoy military history. Many of them already do. I find that... Best, the best students there are already very interested in military history, and, re, and they would like to learn more. Uh, one of the problems is the operational tempo for the Army over the past few years has been so high, um, and they, they really don't get as much time as they would like to, to reflect on what they're doing, to read military history. And the year they get at Fort Leavenworth is a year just for them to go to school, to, to do studies, and just spend some time thinking about their profession. It, they, one historian has said that oftentimes the problem with the military it spends so much time running its machine, the bureaucracy, just going day-to-day business and managing it, that it forgets what the machine is designed to do. And by studying military history, it gives them an opportunity to reflect on that. And step back and see the big picture. Yeah. What, why are we doing this? Um, how have people done this in the past? Um, and not sort of, you know, what lessons can we learn? Can we cookie-cut and plug into our current situation? But sort of how can we think... Um, what kind of perspectives can history give us? Being more critical thinkers, being more creative thinkers, um, and what should we look for? Uh, like I said, not in terms of, you know, what specific maneuver should I use at this battle, um, but to sort of think critically about. You know, they've, they've sort of had that, that that experience of thinking critically, and that's what we give them in the military history classes. Well, that and that's what history is so valuable for providing. I think that kind of perspective and, and critical thinking opportunity. Now, do you ever get the the student who just uh, doesn't want to hear this, who, who's thinking this, these are all dead guys, this is all old stuff, uh, this can't possibly relate to the way we fight today? None who have expressed that openly to me. Um, <laughs> so they're smart, too. That's... Well, I mean, we, 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 we solicit feedback from them all the time, and oftentimes we get feedback saying, um, our big, our, the core course we teach is 20th century military history, from 1915 to 1945. Uh, looking at how militaries adapted during World War I, during the interwar period, and how that was reflected in World War II. Um, and often their, their question is, okay, we're saying this, these conventional innovation, we're not fighting a conventional fight. 
but the idea is not so much to get them thinking, you know, just thinking about the process of military change and adaptation, um, how a military deals with a problem, it's how it develops a good military culture where it can address problems honestly and come up with good solutions. Uh, so we do get skepticism saying, you know, uh, why aren't we doing more counterinsurgency historical case studies? And we've incorporated more of those into our curriculum. Um, but, it, you know, when I first got there, there was a lot of questions. Why are we studying uh, the Battle of Midway instead of, say, the Philippine insurrection? And, and yet, uh, one of the lessons of history is if you prepare for the last war, mm-hmm. uh, you're not going to be prepared, for, ready for the next one. Uh, I would think the last thing a historically-minded officer would want to do would be to simply focus on, on counterinsurgency because that's the need of the moment. Yeah, that that's one of the things we, we have to deal with because uh, we often tell them we're not preparing you for your next assignment, we're preparing for the next 10 years. Right. And Iraq's going to be the assignment for the next few years, but in 10 years, who knows? Uh, but uh, but the, the saying that um, studying the last war is the problem is something that we challenge because in studying world between World War One and World War Two, the side that innovated best was the one that studied the last war, World War One, most closely, most carefully, and most critically. Um, and they got the right lessons out of World War One, while those who decided the lessons were irrelevant or that they knew better than the lessons of the past war, they often had problems in World War Two. Uh, so, you know, and that just underlines the need to study military history, not so much the specifics, but how to do it, how to study it critically, um, how to study it on its own terms, how to study it at all levels of war. Uh, so, and, you know, that's applicable, that's universally applicable, no matter what conflict the United States is facing now or in the future. That is just taking us to a, a meta level of the study of the study of war. There, there's Jay Luvas's, uh uh, famous book on on the the European mm-hmm. study of our civil war mm-hmm. and their failure to learn many lessons from it mm-hmm. uh, because they they assumed the American Civil War was not relevant to European conditions mm-hmm. and of course and, and, and that's one of the ways of studying history. I mean, even up the more recent conflicts that were recent to uh, World War One, I, I mean they took the lessons that they wanted from those wars to vindicate their doctrine that they were already had decided on. And so they went to World War One with a doctrine that was based on that was not based on an honest reading of history, and so they had problems in World War One. Uh, the the Boer example was yeah. was neglected altogether. The the impact of modern weaponry mm-hmm. because it didn't fit the the preconceived notion. Well, some did rethink it after the Boer War, but then it came the Russo-Japanese War and frontal assaults where the Japanese did work, and so they said, okay. Frontal assaults can work. You just have the proper spirit. You know, spirit can overcome firepower. Uh, and then uh, came World War One, and they learned some pretty hard lessons. I, I was uh, in in class this afternoon and mentioned Malvern Hill as an early example of why, if the enemy is lined up at the top of a hill, it's not a good idea to go straight up mm-hmm. the hill at them. Mm-hmm. And one woman raised her hand and said, "Well." But, like, wasn't that common sense? Did that ever happen again in the Civil War? Mm. And uh, those who'd done the reading ahead or knew about began rattling off name after name of incident where it happened. Um, it, it, it's funny how common sense would tell you one thing, but if you are committed to a doctrine or you don't have a good alternative doctrine, mm-hmm. uh, you'll just, or just don't have a good alternative, period. Yeah, exactly. There, there's, there's, that, that was my immediate point was there was no solution. I left the students for the weekend to say, come up with a solution for taking a... 
uh, a fortified position that's better than that one. That's one of the great. When I teach the Civil War, I teach a Civil War upper level focused class. One of the great things is to take take officers you know, through the through Burnside situation at Fredericksburg and mm-hmm. challenge them to find a better solution based on the situation he faces. Because you know the, the, the traditional impression is what an idiot doing frontal assaults, and uh, then you start to okay, what are the options Burnside has to, available to him at the time, and what better plan could he have come up with? And when they work through all the problems that Burnside specifically faced, they have a hard time coming up with a better solution. It, One is not to attack, but then again, you really can't do that. It, which brings up a point, uh, another one that, that I mentioned with the students, but it comes up all the time, especially in, in popular writing about the Civil War, which is the notion that somebody like Burnside at Fredericksburg uh, is an idiot. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, it, it seems to me that, that you don't get to command 50,000 men uh, if you are truly an idiot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just doesn't happen. And those guys had to have something on the ball. And while they make what are obvious mistakes to us sitting in our armchairs, mm-hmm. uh, the alternative, what are the alternatives is, is, is the question to ask. Hey, you mentioned Malvern Hill before. I mean, you think anybody who had been at Malvern Hill would know that a frontal assault wouldn't work, but Ambrose Burnside wasn't at Malvern Hill. Mm-hmm. So what would he have to draw on? And, and the person who orders the assault at Malvern Hill is, is Robert E. Lee, and, mm-hmm. and people don't typically call him an idiot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but those who call Burnside an idiot... Uh, might be a little stumped for words at Malvern Hill. What, so. Well, uh, was it a, a military historian, Dennis Showalter, once said that uh, military history is one of the great bastions of Calvinism in, Amer- in American life, <laughs> mm-hmm. in that, you know, we assume that the people who are successful are the elect, and so therefore we look purely for the things, we, we view everything they do in terms of, if they make a mistake early, it's a learning experience, and it's a positive, mm-hmm. because they're one of the elect. Um, and given how much you know, luck plays a role in military events, that may not there may not be total illegitimacy to the uh, Calvinist approach. But those who fail, we automatically automatically start looking back, and we read the history backwards and looking at the mistakes that go. Okay, if they made mistakes early, that's a, that's that's a mistake, and that's a sign of the problems that are going to come. They're going to make him a failure. Um, so I found uh, Dennis Showalter's. Pro, uh, Concept of military Calvinism predestinated a pretty interesting one that applies in military history. I, I like that very much, and that's a good point to bring up uh, George McClellan, uh, who is is one of the favorite whipping boys for for those who, who read military history, Civil War history, uh, who ultimately ultimately fails at the task of defeating uh, Lee in the Army of Northern Virginia and loses his job. Uh, so in retrospect, everything McClellan did was wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I will confess I have not had the opportunity to read McClellan's War, The Failure of Moderation and the Struggle for the Union. I've read uh, as much about it as I could this week while uh, doing other responsibilities. But I gather your uh, your take on McClellan is, is that he was not this uh, unmitigated failure. Um, well, clearly in, in the ultimate judgment of history, I mean, he did not win the war. Um, and he was he was fired, and ultimately he can be seen to have failed. Um, nonetheless, I mean, McClellan has inspired so much debate among Civil War historians, and he's so controversial. Um, he, the, the, the overall perception of, he's, of him is, is he's an unsuccessful general, and so you try to look and say, okay, why did he fail? And so everything he does is sort of viewed as, 
you know, foreshadowing um, his failure. And there's also the fact that he is on he he he's sort of a negative reference for so many um, other Civil War characters. When we study Ulysses S. Grant. We, we we tried we tell our you know we take officers on staff rides and we use McClellan as a lesson of what not to do. Don't be overly cautious. Um, and you try to you know tell, them, but be like Grant, not like McClellan. And in the you know civil military issue, him and Lincoln, um, it's pretty hard to be in conflict with Lincoln and come out in history looking very good. So. But McClellan does have some some obvious strengths, mm-hmm. some some accomplishments. Uh, mm-hmm. Clearly, he's not not an idiot uh, altogether. Yeah, um, he is an effective general. Um, he's very good at, at. Obviously, he gets a lot of credit for organizing an army, um, for you know, conducting for conceiving of strategic plans and coming up with ideas uh, for what to do. Um, but he he does have a mindset of. Um, we want to win the war, but we want to make sure we do it in a way that doesn't make the situation worse. Uh, and that leads him to be more cautious, to be very cautious in his conduct, to want to avoid casualties. Um, he sort of, in many ways, I, I described him as a sort of a Whig, and I set up the uh, his personal history, his roots in the Whig Party, and their perspectives of, you know, the great danger in any effort is passion. And war obviously stirs up passions. McClellan's trying to conduct a war um, in a way that will not make the situation worse. Um, as you know, Winfield Scott predicted in the first part of the war that if you invade the South, you're going to have you know if you're successful, you'll have devastated provinces and you'll have to hold them under under uh, armed guard for a generation. And McClellan just said, you know, we're going to have to invade the South, but we have to be careful that we don't. You know, come out of this war with our institutions destroyed and everything. Um, so he wanted to wage the war for conservative ends. This led him, in many ways, to be a conservative general. Um, and it makes many of his decisions more understandable. Decision not to not to try and assault at Yorktown when he had a better alternative that was more conducive to the way he saw the war should be conducted. Um, and other other other. Um, Episodes where he's, he's very cautious in conducting operations. So he, he's he's conservative. Uh, he, he well, you mentioned General Scott briefly. The, the Anaconda Plan. Mm-hmm. It sounds like uh, the, the political concept behind that in Scott's mind is to subdue the South while disarranging it as little as possible. Yeah, to uh, use to basically blockade it, surround it, and tell and you know give the South really no reason to keep resisting. You know, it sort of to force the people of the South to face options. Either they could resist, in which case, you know, what would be the rewards of that? Um, it would they'd be cut off and economically, so they, there'd be economic suffering for resisting, and also send a message. But if you lay down your arms, you know, the whole rationale behind the, the conservative conciliation policy in the beginning was make it as attractive as possible for them to lay down their arms and return to the Union. And it's founded in assumptions about exactly how strong Confederate nationalism is. Um, in the South, assumptions that it's that it's weak on the part of early war leaders. Whereas by the by the end of the war, the assumption is the war has gone on long enough. Southern nationalism has been strengthened, and so we're just going to crush them. It, well, that assumption of weak Confederate nationalism is fairly broad in the North. I mean, Lincoln certainly believes mm-hmm. that the 
rebellion is just a crust of, of elite leaders duping the, the honest, loyal Southerners. Whenever, you're in, whenever one um, government engages in a counterinsurgency effort, and that's exactly what the, the North is engaged in, the wars wage can, in, a, in a conventional way, but from the perspective of the North as an insurgency, mm-hmm. and unless you take the assumption it's a small minority, then how can you consider your, your effort to have any legitimacy if, if you're you know, trying to crush a people who don't want to be under your governance? Which, uh, again, that ties back to your talk about the teaching uh, staff college students that uh, maybe there are some, some lessons to be, uh, or some big picture issues to be thought of. In the American Revolution, the British go when their assumption is it's just a few hotheads, and if we're conciliatory with them, um, they, they can be won back. And, again, if the British didn't assume that, then their effort to, uh, you know, reestablish political control would itself had some illegitimacy in, the, in their own, uh, but for their own political way of thinking. Right. If, if you if, if you claim you're fighting for democracy, you mm-hmm. you have to be trying to enforce the will of the majority, not mm-hmm. not a not your own will upon a majority. Yeah. So uh, that's interesting. So that 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 puts McClellan and Lincoln's views, and indeed most Northern leaders' views in 1861, in context that they they pretty much have to believe that, or they have no right to be doing it. I suppose slavery throws a uh, a little monkey wrench into that calculation. You can say there's some four million people whose views are not being considered, mm-hmm. um, even if uh, many white Southerners do want to rebel. Well, in, in much of the northern hostility that fuels the rise of the Republican Party is based on the assumption that there's an aggressive slaveocracy in the South that's a threat to the sub, to northern liberties, and. If you live in the North and you have never, never have contact with Southern people, and all you get about Southern people is what the, what the, the hyper-partisan newspapers of the time tell you, you can, you can understand that. You can, that'll become your view. But for someone like McClellan, who had contact with Southerners, um, the, the, the idea that there was a slave power conspiracy in the country would have seemed ridiculous, um, which is why um, he would have viewed the Republican Party as you know, they're rising to power on a bogus assumption of a slave power um, conspiracy that really doesn't exist. And so, uh, so he views that as a dangerous uh, assumption and not, uh, not a reason to be suppressing the rebellion necessarily. Yeah. We're going to take another short break here. We'll come back and talk more about McClellan, Manassas, uh, the slave power, the insurgency, and many other Civil War topics with Ethan Rayfuse when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Civil War Time Machine is back in order, and we'll be putting it to use for Ethan Rayfuse, our guest today on Civil War Talk Radio.
It's the one level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Apsio. Apsio's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Apsio, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.apsio.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Ethan Rafuse, author of A Single Grand Victory, The First Campaign and Battle of Manassas, and also McClellan's War, The Failure of Moderation in the Struggle for the Union. Um, Ethan, along with those two, are you working on anything currently, or do you have anything else uh, in the pipeline? Well, I'm currently in the final stages of putting together uh, a guide to the Antietam campaign for the University of Nebraska Press's uh, Hallowed Ground series, their Battlefield Guide series. And um, I'm currently working on a, on a short study of Lee in the last two years of the war for uh, the same series I did the, the first Manassas book in. Ah, is, is the uh, Battlefield Guide series, is that related to the, uh, or, or how does that contrast with the U.S. Army uh, War College Battlefield Guides? Well, the War College Guides are done, um, as I'm sure you're familiar, with guiding, with giving you directions to the battlefield, um, but leaving you to read um, excerpts from the official records and other documents to uh, um, get, a, get a sense of what happened. The, uh, and they're geared toward the sort of the staff ride concept which is uh, for officers to go on the field um, with the words of the participants, try to understand the perspective of the, the participants, understand their decisions, look at the field as they dealt with it, um, and to approach it in more of a critical, um, Socratic-type way of studying the battle, um, more critical thinking. Whereas the uh, Nebraska guides are more designed to, they, they, tell, they tell you what happened, provide analysis, so there, there's sort of the contrast between the tour and the staff ride uh, into how these things are conceived. Hmm. They both sound valuable. The staff ride books are certainly uh, mm-hmm. a, a great series of books, and I think a lot of listeners have enjoyed them. We had Harold Nelson on uh, not mm-hmm. too long ago to uh, talk about the uh, the staff ride concept. Mm-hmm. And, uh, again, that brings us back to our discussion earlier of how how officers today can use Mm-hmm. Uh, the Civil War experience to learn from not uh, not that the weaponry or tactics are the same, but uh, some of the overall concepts of conflict are, are perhaps unchanging. And the human factor in war that, that rarely changes. Mm-hmm. The uh, although I was watching uh, some television show not too long ago, uh, and I don't know what it was, but it seemed to be about a small unit in. Uh, uh, I assume in Iraq or some some other, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps Afghanistan. I couldn't tell by the uh, stereotyped uh, Muslim opponents who were attacking the American soldiers. Mm-hmm. But the the enemy's tactic seemed to be to walk in a large mob across an open field uh, while firing AK-47s and walking slowly forward, much as uh, somewhat like Pickett's Charge, actually. Uh, and I just thought, is this Hollywood's concept of tactics? Uh, has it come no further than 1863? Uh, you would think one well-placed uh, machine gun position could could wipe them out, but instead it took the entire hour show to, to stop this attack. 
It was just a, wa- a wave attack and no no sort of tactical sophistication of movements or maneuvers or try to find flanks. It was just I haven't seen the show, so it, that's what it was just coming head on. And and what was particularly odd was the slow motion. Uh, they, they were walking slowly while under extremely heavy fire. I would think, regardless of one's ideology, you'd you'd want to hit the dirt in that circumstance and fire mm-hmm. from a prone position, um, and not just keep walking forward into the uh, American mm-hmm. position. But uh, that's Hollywood. Uh, the uh, re- returning to uh, the 1860s here. Okay. The well, the question I like to ask uh, guests on the show, and I, I'll ask you this one: is is the the time machine question? Mm-hmm. If you could go back for an hour to the 1860s and meet with any figure from that time, talk with them, and return unscathed to the present. Who would you like to visit with? Oh, from the Civil War. That's a good question. I think there. Jeez, where to? That's a question I never <laughs> thought of, and it's a really good one. Um, sticking with my own book, I mean. To be with McClellan um, in the winter of 1861-62 um, as he is developing his plans for the Peninsula Campaign and he's working out his Just a chance to, you know, see what passes between those two men and their conversations and their relationship um, that doesn't get captured in letters, that doesn't get captured in memoirs, all of which are, you know, fogged and by later events. Um, just, just to see their relationship and how it was, I mean, maybe a half hour in the winter of 61-62 and a half hour in the fall of 62 when the relationship is really getting frayed. Uh, this is McClellan and Lincoln you're talking about? Just to see the two of them interact, yes. um, to see how their relationship, you know, what what is not being captured in history in their conversations and in how they're interacting with each other. Um, because obviously Lincoln never wrote a memoir, um, and so the perspective we get, although I guess the official Nicolay Hay, sort of the official, you know, authorized biography, um, but of course they wrote as partisans of Lincoln, and just just to see what their relationship really was like, stripped away from, you know, knowledge of the future that McClellan's going to run against Lincoln in '64, just to see what their relationship really is like. I, uh, what a great choice! I, uh, everybody knows that famous photograph of uh, Lincoln. And McClellan and the staff at Antietam, mm-hmm. uh, Lincoln towering over McClellan, but McClellan looking up with that, I don't know if it's arrogant is quite the right word, but very self-possessed look. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the, it, it almost screams to me that he doesn't get it, uh, that, that this president is trying to help him, mm-hmm. but he's not letting it happen. Uh, well, or McClellan's perspective would be, He's trying. He's trying to help the president, and the president won't let him help him. Yes, exactly. It's very much how he sees it, and I think that photograph captures the the relationship and the personality uh, of both of the men in a way that uh, some thousands of words can't. But to go back to that moment, uh, I, mean, think, McClell- I mean, obviously McClellan is. You know, he's writing um, with the the martyrdom of Lincoln, um, obviously hanging over. Yes, him. he can't say. And but he 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 says in his memoir and it, 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 from what we have from contemporary that the, when the two of them were together they did have a very good personal relationship mm-hmm. and uh, it, it it just it just in some ways I mean in many ways they're they're very much alike I mean their roots are both in the old Whig party um, 
they, if, they, if it had been the 1840s, the two of them would have been on the same side of the political fence. I mean, mm-hmm. McClellan did not like the Jacksonian Democrats because they violated his sense of what proper you know, political leadership should be. They both, McClellan and Lincoln, um, viewed Webster and Clay as ideals, as sort of statesmen, what they wanted to believe the statesmen should be. Um, but, of course, the 1850s comes along, and people have to, make, have to negotiate the whole um, sectional conflict. And that's, that's one of the more interesting parts of um, research for McClellan's war. And I think what comes out of the book is just how these two men who are together and then how in the 1850s they start to find themselves apart to the point by 1858, uh, McClellan is um, doing so much with the Illinois Central Railroad to help Stephen Douglas that Lincoln's friends in the Illinois government start talking about maybe we need to, you know, start looking into some old tax records or whatever for the Illinois Central. And then when the case comes up, the Illinois Central hires Lincoln as their lawyer. It's just the, just a fascinating relationship between these two. Um, it's so much more than this, just the Civil War, um, which has been amply documented, but just, just both of their roots and the paths they take to being on the opposite side of the political fence. Well, that is great stuff. I, there's this, uh, an apocryphal story that, that when Lincoln worked for the, the IC, for the Illinois Central, he, uh, he he won the great McLean County tax case for them and gave them, a, what was at the time, a huge bill, $5,000. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure you've come across the story where the, the Illinois Central refuses it to pay it, and the officer who does so is, is George McClellan. Well, at the time of the McLean tax case, I don't think my... my Best story. McClellan was not with Illinois Central at the time. I, that's right. I, in fact, he's in the Crimea at the time. Yeah. So that's it's again not a true story. Again, that, that's how memory is shaping these, you know, the histories of the war. These incidents would be so great if true, and they seem to ring true based on what we know about the Civil War. Um, but again, that's reading history backwards. That Calvinist right. approach of we're studying McClellan. We're studying McClellan for his drawbacks, and we're studying Lincoln for his virtues. Um, and so we can read that story back into the record where it's clear that something like that did not happen. Exactly. No, it didn't happen. And I'm, I'm working on a, a Lincoln book, uh, ho- hopefully out in 2000, early 2008, and I was researching that particular story. And, and as you say, it didn't happen. Uh, McClellan's not working for the company at the time. But I did not go further back in McClellan's background, and I'm, I'm fascinated by your uh, argument that, that he shares with Lincoln many views uh, before the 1850s. I think that's really uh, a, an interesting perspective to look at these two men from. And also, as you say, not to do it backwards, uh, Lincoln good, McClellan bad, therefore read everything early in that light, uh, that, that, which is how human nature being what it is, we, we do tend to look at things that way. I wanted to ask you uh, about another issue in Civil War, uh, not writing, I guess, well, writing, communication. Um, the uh, the Civil War blog uh, that you contribute to, mm-hmm. uh, what is the name of that? Uh, Civil Warriors. Civil Warriors. And this, uh, uh, I guess anybody listening to this show already has figured out what a blog is because mm-hmm. they figured out how to download this file, so they're... Uh, they're they're ahead of the curve for for many traditional Civil War readers, but you and some other scholars uh, have a very interesting website where you you offer your opinions. Who else is involved with that? Um, Brooke Simpson, uh, Mark Grimsley. It was originally Mark Grimsley was running it, I think, on his own, and then he recruited uh, Brooke Simpson and Steve Woodworth, 
and Sean Dial is the other fellow who's been uh, recruited. Um, so the the five of us uh, contribute to this blog. And what what sort of things do you write about? Um, well, one thing I wrote about a uh, couple uh, in one of my first blogs. I did my I went to my high school reunion in October, which took place. Um, I, I grew up in North Virginia at Fairfax High School, and our high school, at our our teams, you know, the mascot for our team, the team, whatever it was the Fairfax Rebels, and uh, and I wrote about that going, going to my reunion, talking about reflecting on what's happened to Northern Virginia, um, how it's become, um, you know, de-dixified, dixified, in uh, over the since the time I graduated. When I graduated. Our, our team was the name of the Rebels, and we had our drill team called the Confederates. Yet the area was changing, becoming much more diverse, and a huge controversy developed over um, dropping the name Confederates and uh, dropping the old mascot who was Johnny Rebs, or the caricature of the old sad sack uh, Civil War soldier. And so I just sort of reflected on how this, what this says about changes in Northern Virginia. And what does this say about the future of the South as the South becomes more diverse, much as Northern Virginia has? Although obviously, Northern Virginia is, you know, changing on, you know, on, is changed on steroids. Uh, and about where the line between the Confederacy and the North is today, um, between those parts of the South that are still still Southern, quasi-Confederate, you know, and those parts which have been Yankeefied. And and there are a lot of those. Yeah, and um, and also you know posting stuff on current current issues, uh, the recent you know scandal that, at Walter Reed involving uh, the soldiers that you know I think they got a little got got us a little off the Civil War, um, but you know the touchstone for much of the analysis has been Lincoln's famous Second Inaugural. Where he talks about taking care of those who bore in the battle, um, using that as a touchstone for you know discussing uh, this controversy that's come up. Hmm. If, if listeners want to go to that blog, is there a, a handy address or www.civilwarriors? I think it's .net slash WordPress slash WordPress. Okay. Yeah. One of the reasons I, I agreed yeah. to do it was first of all, it was just something I was interested in doing, uh, but also because working for the United States military, we've got certain restrictions on you know we can't have a public website for our department or things like that. Um, so this this gives an opportunity for people who want to have contact with me to do so. In fact, I remember when when I first uh, tried to contact you to, to invite you to be on the show, finding out uh, normally I, I'll, I'll look up the university website. There's the professors. I'll get a phone number. I'll get an email. I'll get in touch. And uh, it was it was like uh, finding uh, Colonel Sanders' secret formula to find your email address. Uh, the, the the army did not want to reveal uh, who was teaching uh, in Kansas. Apparently, it it it. I don't. It, it's a sort of I guess a better be safe than sorry. Although I don't know how much sorrow could be inflicted by people having access to my email. Well, well, I, I was glad I was able to find it through the Civil Warriors blog, and uh, I'm glad you could be on the show today. It looks like we're out of time. I'll see that. But uh, Ethan, thank you very much for uh, for taking the time to join us. It's my pleasure. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.